0: All right, if you got a Bible this morning, go ahead and open it to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Let me also remind you uh, in that church app, there are digital notes available. So you've got a a physical handout uh, in your seat, a paper paper copy. But uh, if you want to do that digitally in your phone, email yourself uh, the copy of the notes when we get done, uh, you can do that through the church app as well. We have been studying uh, the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Uh, I want to just thank Corey uh, Carter for preaching last week. I heard he did an awesome job. Uh, really appreciate him stepping up and taking the opportunity. And uh, I had a great trip in Florida last week visiting some, some ministry friends, and um, I'm glad to be back and be back in Revelation this morning. So Revelation 2, we've been working through these seven churches, and every, every step of the way we've said that these seven churches in Revelation were, number one, historical churches. They were real churches that existed in the first century, that had real challenges, just like this church exists and has real challenges. Uh, they were full of people that love God, love the Word of God, and yet Christ had specific things to address to each of these seven local churches. But these seven churches are also seven types of churches that have existed through all of church history. As a matter of fact, I think if you looked at from the book of Acts to the rapture of the church... Only seven types of churches have ever existed, and we would fall into one of those seven types of churches. The question is, which, which one of these churches best reflects who we are and what do we need to hear from the Lord concerning our church? Number three, these seven churches represent seven periods of church history. And so as, as John is writing this from the, the revelation of Jesus Christ, he's standing on the day of the Lord and he's, he's tasked to write the things which have been, which is the past. And so from John's vantage point, and again, if you're, you're new this morning, there's some catch-up maybe in the previous messages that would help set what we're saying this morning. But, but from John's perspective, John is standing at the day of the Lord, and he's tasked to write firstly in Revelation the things that he has seen. And that's past tense. And, and, and what he's doing is prophetically looking backwards, And all of church history. And so these seven churches represent for us all of church history from the book of Acts through the rapture of the church. And so we we studied a couple of weeks ago that Ephesus represents the period from 90 to 200 A.D., right after the death of the apostles of Jesus Christ is, is represented through this Ephesus church period. And Jesus Christ corrected this church because they had left their first love. And so right out of the gate, we see historically that the church of Jesus Christ moved away from some things. They moved away from the Word of God and love for the Word of God. And listen, Ephesus did a lot of things right. As a matter of fact, if you were looking for a church, that would be the type of church you wouldn't want to land in. And yet, Christ, Christ looked at that church and said, hey, listen, you're doing a lot of things right, but you've left your first love. And, and after the death of the apostles of Christ, there were, there were people called the early church fathers that were good men and moral men and, and godly men, but they began to deviate from the word of God in their writings and in their teachings. And so, what, what they were writing and teaching and, and, and preaching wasn't what the apostles of Christ were preaching, and it wasn't what Paul was preaching because they had moved away from their love for the Word of God. And, and then we saw that Smyrna represented the period from 200 to, to 325 A.D. And when, when Christ addressed this church, he had no correction to it. And as we look at it historically, I think the reason that, that Christ didn't have anything negative to say against this church is because they were called to be faithful to the death and what was happening was it was a great time of, tr- of persecution against true believers in Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, if you read a little booklet, it's not little, but it's a booklet called Fox's Book of Martyrs. You begin to see that around 200 A.D., there was significant persecution against the church through Roman government, through, through, through all kinds of different persecutions. There were, there were seven Roman persecutions that we mapped out in history. And listen, people that just believed what you believe and what I believe were just martyred for their faith because they just believed what God's word said. And so as we study that and, and we study what Christ said to, but also what he didn't say to that church, he had no correction for that church because many of them gave their life just because of what, what they believed about the word of God and, and, and their stance on Christianity. And then and then the last couple of weeks, we've been studying the church of Pergamus. And, and we said that historically, Pergamos was a key city in the Roman Empire and in the Roman government. This became a, a place where Satan set his seat. In other words, we see not only in church history the, the working of the gospel moving through history, but we see the working of Satan coming against biblical Christianity. Even in the church of Ephesus, when we read that in Revelation chapter 2, there were false apostles in Ephesus. And then when we got to Smyrna, Satan had a synagogue in Smyrna. And now we get to, to Pergamus, and again, this is all previous messages, but Satan has actually set up his seat in Pergamos. And so Satan has developed a religious and a political system that's coming against biblical Christianity, and so this, this city that we're studying, and we'll finish it today by, by God's grace, is a key city in your Bible, and it's a key city in church history. And so Christ addresses this church as Pergamos. He, he, he reveals himself to this church in verse 12, as, as he that hath a short, sharp sword with two edges. And, and, and what we see in each of these seven churches is that Christ gives some information about the church but then he gives information about himself. And each church, it, when Christ reveals about himself a characteristic or a, a, a key fact, it's what that church needed to overcome what they were experiencing. And so Christ reveals himself to the church at Pergamos as he that hath the sharp sword with two edges. Now, those of you that have been a part of our church for any amount of time, what is the sword that has two edges in the in Scripture, what is it? It's the word of God, and so Christ wants this church to know that He is the one that has the two edged sword, the word of God. And He commended this church for a lot of things. This was not a a, you know, this was not like the church of Laodicea that we'll get to in a few weeks. This was a church, listen, that that dwelt in, in a place where Satan's seat was, they labored because Christ said, I know thy works, they were loyal. Because Christ said, you've held fast my name. But the problem is, they didn't hold fast God's word. And you see, that the thing from Pergamos that we can learn is, it's easy to claim the name of Christ and to hold fast his name. Yeah, I'm a believer in Christ, and we should be. We should, we should all come to the place where we acknowledge our sin and come to Christ for salvation. But listen, And listen, there's no sweeter name under heaven, man, Give it among men whereby we must be saved. It's the name of Jesus Christ that, that, man, I remember the day that someone preached the gospel to me and I responded and put my faith and trust in him. Listen, this church held his name. The problem is they didn't hold his word. And the problem is in this church, and we'll see it in just a second, what began to happen was false doctrine began to creep in to this church. And, and we need to learn from that example That doctrine matters. Christ Christ commended this church for holding his name even in the midst of suffering, even when one of their own was martyred. But then he corrects them because they were having people within their church holding false doctrine. And so the correction, and this is again all review, the correction was against two doctrines in this church. Number one, Christ called out the doctrine of those that hold the doctrine of Balaam. And we studied the Old Testament story of Balaam, how he was a false prophet. And he, he sold out to Balak, this, this Gentile king, he sold out to him how he could make sure the nation of Israel was cursed by God. You see, he actually got hired to curse the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. But every time he tried, God said, you can't curse them. They're, they're my chosen people. They're blessed. And so you know, Balaam, what's Balaam going to do? He wants the money, he wants the wages of unrighteousness. So what he does is he teaches Balak, hey, if you can just get the nation of Israel, God's people in the Old Testament, if you can get them to commit fornication, and if you can get them to eat things offered to idols, you won't have to curse them, because God himself will judge them. And and that's what he did. That's what Balaam did, And, and, and what we said was, in the church of Pergamos, there were still people holding this doctrine of Balaam, which is an anti Semitic doctrine. And, and not only were they holding that doctrine, but they were holding the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And, and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans creates a priest class or a separation in the body of Christ. In other words, there would be people that would, would, would appear to be superior in the church, and other people would be lesser in the church. The name Nicolaitan literally means to conquer the laity. Well, how did all of this happen? Well, it happened because this church didn't hold the Word of God. That's how it happened. They held Christ's name, but they didn't hold the Word of God, and because they didn't hold the Word of God, they didn't have right doctrine in their church. And again, we're trying to use this as an example for us what a church believes matters. Let me say it again. What a church believes matters. And what that means is what you believe matters. And listen, there's a lot of people in this room that would say, you know what, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. And praise the Lord for that. What, what's after that? What do you believe after that? And, and, and how you answer that question is, is critically important. It's really important. What we believe matters matters. And it matters so much that Christ himself rebukes this church for allowing false doctrine to creep in where Satan's seat is. And the reason Christ rebukes it is because, listen, the devil, as we're seeing in these seven churches, the devil operates in the realm of false religion. He operates in the realm of false religion. And so through these seven churches, as much as we're seeing how God through history has has moved the gospel to different areas and what saints have experienced and challenges they've had to overcome, what we're also seeing is how Satan is coming against the church of Jesus Christ. How his methodology and his tactics change. And, And let me tell you why, because this is critically important. In the Ephesus church period and the Smyrna church period, man, the devil came against the church like a roaring lion and people were just martyred. And, but what happened is, in church history, the more saints that were killed, the further the gospel went. I mean, I mean, the greater the persecution, the greater the reach of the gospel got into the world. And so Satan looked at that and was like, hey, this isn't working. And so he changes his tactic. And this morning, as we study the, the last lesson in Pergamus, we're going to see how he changed his tactic so significantly that, man, he created perfectly a false religious system to come against and to counterfeit the true biblical Christianity. Okay, so, so here's what we're going to do this morning, and, and you probably are looking at that sheet of paper saying, man, it's a bad day. we got two sides of this note, note, note thing. I didn't pack a lunch today, and uh, we're looking at the clock. How are you going to do this, Jay? We're going we're to do it by getting in it, all right? So let's, let's get in it. Look at Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. Let's read the text, and then we'll get right into the blanks. The Bible says in Revelation 2, verse 12, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath a sharp sword with two edges, I know thy works, where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days when Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. These are all things we just talked about. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit fornication. We talked about that also. So then also thou hast them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I hate. Okay, and we talked about that. Repent, or else I will come to thee quickly, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. To him that overcometh I will give to eat of the hidden manna, and give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name which, new name written, which no man knoweth, saveth he that receiveth it. And I, and I just want to remind you that Satan has set up his seat, and Satan is dwelling at this point in history in Pergamos. So for those of you that think the devil just hangs out in hell, waiting for people to die and enter into hell, God's telling you, no, he actually is not there yet. As a matter of fact, he, he has the ability to set up shop in key cities and key places and do key things that will come against the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this has been happening for thousands of years. As a matter of fact, what we're going to do very quickly is we're going to trace Satan's false religious and political system all the way through the Bible, and we're going to go all the way back to the book of Genesis because in the beginning, God reveals to us this battle For a kingdom and religion, okay. And and so Genesis chapter ten is where we're going to go. I encourage you to turn your Bible to these places. We're going to have the verses on the screen, but you need to know Genesis is the first book, by the way. And I'm not I'm not trying to be funny. Seriously, like when I became a Christian, I didn't know any of the books of the Bible, so the book of Index was like the book I went to first. Right? We're going to go to the Index and we'll find the rest of them. And so uh, even those minor prophets, every now and then, they kind of get mixed up in my mind. Genesis is the first book in your Bible. What we're going to see is we're going to see that all through history, Satan has tried to create a political religious system to come against Christ and to counterfeit Christ. In Genesis chapter 10, we're introduced to a man that's connected with a key city named Babel. And this man's name is Nimrod. Nimrod. None of you in this room have children named Nimrod, I'm pretty sure. Now, you might have called them that, but you didn't name them that. Had their birth, right? You're such a Nimrod. Okay, well there's a reason that people say that. Alright, Genesis ten verses eight through ten, and Cush begot Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one in the earth, and he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it said, even as Nimrod the mighty hunter before the Lord, and the beginning of his his kingdom was what? Was Babel, and Erech, and Akad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. And there's a lot of information in this passage right here, but we we need to know that there's a man named Nimrod, and he had a kingdom, and his kingdom began in this place called Babel. Nimrod, his name literally means rebel or rebellion. And again, that's why you don't name your children Nimrod, and, and when they act like that, that's why you call them a Nimrod, because they're acting in rebellion against you, you little Nimrod, right? You want to just pinch their head off. Okay, so it also says that he's a mighty hunter before the Lord. And, and and again, if you just gloss gloss over that verse, you really don't understand or appreciate what it's saying. But but what it's saying is that this man was a rebel or in rebellion, and he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. In other words, in the face of the Lord or against the Lord. Okay? And and he has a he has a kingdom. By the way, this is the first mention of the word kingdom in your Bible. And it's connected to a man that is in the face of the Lord. Oh, and by the way, he's a mighty hunter. Hmm. That's very interesting. Students of the Bible are going to pick up some keys here. Nimrod for us is is an Old Testament picture or type of the Antichrist. Not only was this man connected with Babel, there, there was also a tower connected with Babel. In Genesis chapter 11, just a few pages over or a page over in your Bible, many of you know this story. The whole earth was of one language, one speech. It came to pass as they journeyed from the east. They found a plain in the land of Shinar, same place mentioned in Genesis chapter 10, modern-day Iraq, I believe. And they dwelt there, and they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick, and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven, and make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad on the face of the earth. And so not only is there a man connected with Babel, but there's a tower. And so just check out what's happening in the city of Babel. Number one, this group of people are making brick, okay? So what they're making is the works of their hands. What's interesting is anytime God used someone to build something, when he directed it, they didn't didn't use brick. They used stones. Because who made stones? God made stones. And sometimes God even said, hey, don't even put a chisel against that stone. But here we have men that are building stones something through the works of their hands. And they said, we're going to build two things. We're going to build a city. Well, that's a political component. And they're going to build a tower. And that's a religious component, a component of worship, right? And so they're building a political religious system in Babel. And they say, you know what, we're going to build this thing so big that the top of this is going to get to heaven. Hmm. In other words, we're going to get to heaven based on our own effort, our own work, our own merit. We'll just build it and we'll get there ourselves. I'm going to take a time out right here because there might be some people in this room that are just like the people at Babel that think that if you build it somehow through the works of your hands, you can somehow get to God. You can somehow make it to heaven through your works. Friends, you can't. You can't. You can't build a tower big enough. You can't build a religious system big enough. You can't do enough good things with the works of your hands to get there. And, oh, by the way, they said, let us make us a name. And, by the way, if you could build your own way to heaven through your own works, you could have a name. But there's only one name that can accomplish that. And it's the name of Jesus Christ. He is the one that built the way for us. It's his finished work on the cross of Calvary. That's why works will not get you to heaven. That's why being a moral person or doing good things or feeding the poor or putting wells in Africa or helping your neighbor to the nth degree, those are all good things, but they will not accomplish getting you to an eternal state with God. Forever. It's only through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. And so, what we see in Babel is a man who's against God. He has a tower and a city and a kingdom. And then there's also a woman connected with Babel. And her name is Semiramis. Semiramis. And you got to do a little digging to to see all this. And and you got to study a little bit in history. This man, Nimrod, died. Legend has it, this man that was against God, he died. This would would have been his wife. Semiramis claimed that Nimrod had actually become, after his death, the sun god, the S-U-N god. That's very interesting. And then this woman, this this Semiramis that was connected with Babel, she claimed that she had miraculously conceived by a sunbeam from the sun God, and, and, and doesn't that sound kind of counterfeit, like right off the bat? Here, here's, here's a man that died that became the sun, and this woman claims to have conceived by a sunbeam. In other words, she's saying that she's had a counterfeit virgin birth, and she gave a, a name to her son, and her son's name was Tammuz, or Tammuz. and coincidentally, His birthday is December twenty fifth. To coincide with the winter solstice, which, by the way, is always connected to the to the position of the sun in relation to the earth. And I know you're going to have to dig a little deep this morning and and take some notes, but that's okay. So so the winter solstice around December twenty-fifth or on December twenty-fifth is the longest day of darkness. And it's the longing or the the wanting or the, re, the desire for the son to return, right? And, and so that's what's happening. And so Tammuz supposedly became like his father Nimrod, a mighty hunter. But he was killed by a wild pig. Then after 40 days of weeping by his mother, he's resurrected. And oh, by the way, he's resurrected in the spring after 40 days of weeping You say, man, that's all conjecture. Well, Ezekiel chapter 8 would disagree. When we get to Ezekiel's prophecy, God calls out the nation of Israel for numerous things, but one of the things that he deals with in Ezekiel chapter 8 is this worship and abomination of of people that are weeping for Tammuz. And so let me give it to you. Ezekiel chapter 8, we don't have time to read all of it, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip down to verse 8. I know verse eight's not on the screen. Just listen. Then he said to me, son of man, dig now in the wall. When I digged in the wall, behold a door. He said to me, go in and behold the wicked abominations that they do here. He's talking about the nation of Israel. So I went in and saw, and behold, every form of creeping thing, an abominable beast, and the idols of the house of Israel portrayed on the wall round about. And there stood before them 70 men of the ancients of the house of Israel. In the midst of them, Jezaniah the son of Shepan, with every man his censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up. And he said to me, "Son of man, hast thou seen the ancients of the house of Israel do in the dark, every man in the chambers of his imagery? For they say, 'The Lord seeth us not; the Lord hath forsaken the earth.'" And in other words, these guys are doing all this behind closed doors, and and they're saying, "God can't see us behind these closed doors." By the by the way, don't kid yourself. God is telling Ezekiel that they're doing this behind closed doors. And he says, hey, dig a hole through the door. And then Ezekiel looks through. He's like, oh, yeah, they're doing what you said they would do. Okay. He sees behind your closed doors. So whatever you think you're hiding from the Lord, just forget it. You're not hiding it from the Lord. You're just not hiding it from the Lord. Okay. So he said to me, verse 13, turn yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations that they do. Now, he's already listed some pretty rough things. And he says, what I'm about to show you is even greater abomination than what you've already seen. Then he brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, which is toward the north. And behold, there sat women weeping for who? Tammuz. Man, what in the world? You see, you see the story is that the Semiramis, she claimed that Tammuz came back to life what she said was it wasn't really Tammuz that came back to life, but it was Rim- Nimrod that was, was alive in the body of Tammuz. In other words, not only do you have through this story a counterfeit virgin birth, but you have a counterfeit resurrection. And, and what you also have is a counterfeit manifestation of the Father that's in the Son, which according to the book of Timothy is the mystery of godliness that God was manifest in the flesh. And so in Babel, you have Nimrod, you have a tower, you have a woman who now has a son that died and was resurrected. He was born on December 25th. He was mourned for for 40 days. He was resurrected from the dead, but it was really Nimrod who was resurrected. The Semiramis also goes by the title Queen of Heaven and Mother of God, and oh, by the way, the story goes, upon her death, she turned into a dove. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. Okay, so, so why, are we, why are we spending all the, the, the time this morning talking about this? Well, take your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 3. Because, because Satan's false religious system can be traced all the way back to Babel and to Babylon, Babylon the Babylonian religious system. It was founded in Nimrod. It, it includes both a political and a religious component. It includes worship of a child and a mother. And oh, by the way, it, it, it began thousands of years before Jesus Christ was God in the flesh, born through a virgin named Mary. Satan counterfeited it all, and he counterfeited it through Babel. Now, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 tells you why. After the fall of man in the garden, when the Lord comes down and deals out the judgment in the garden for Adam and Eve's sin, he also gives a prophetic promise to the serpent. Verse 14, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly thou shalt go, dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, listen, and between thy seed and her seed. And and I want you to know that in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, right there, God promised that a virgin would have seed. Women don't have seed. We won't give the biology lesson this morning. All the parents in the room are like, thank you. Women don't have seed, but God promised that the seed of a woman was going to bruise Satan's head. Well, what we just read through this Babylonian system is a false counterfeit system of worship of a woman who claimed to have given birth to a, a child who died and resurrected and now is worshiped. It's Babylonian religion. It's paganism. So so what happened? Well, we know as a result of the rebellion at the Tower of Babel, God scattered those people all over the earth, and God also confounded their language. And you you guys know the story, right? And if you've ever traveled out of this country to another country and, and have ever experienced the difficulty of communicating in another language, you know, Where's the bathroom? In whatever language. You know the struggle. Well, the reason why is because of Genesis 11. Because God scattered the nations. God said in Genesis 11, verse 7, Let us go down and confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of the earth. They left off to build the city. And the name of it is called Babel because the Lord did confound the language of all the earth. And from thence the Lord did scatter them abroad upon the face of the earth. Why did God do that? Because of what they were doing. Because of their rebellion and, 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 and man, just false religious system that Nimrod and Semiramis developed in Babel. And so what happened is, listen, that, that mother-son worship, because God confounded their language and scattered them, well, they took it with them. And it doesn't matter where you go on this planet, and it doesn't matter what culture you land in, there is going to be some type of representation of a mother goddess and a son that's being worshipped. So in China, it's called, the mother goddess is called Xingmu. In Germany, she was called the virgin Hertha. In India, she's called Indrani. In Syria, she's called Ishtar. In Ephesus, by the way, that's in the book of Acts, She's called Diana. In Egypt, she's called Isis and her son Os- Osiris. In Greece, she's called Aphrodite and her son Eros. In Phoenicia, she's called Ashtar and her son was Baal. And in Rome, she's called Venus and her son is called Jupiter. But listen, at the end of the day, whatever it's called, man, it's the devil's religion. It is Babylonian and it is a counterfeit to christianity so so we, we took a minute to say okay where did this thing start now we need to go back to pergamus and say man how did the devil how did the devil get his foot in in the church age and bring that religious and political system back around well, you're asking good questions, so let's, let's do that. So now what we're going to do is we're going to trace Satan's political and religious system through church history. And, and, and we've mentioned this before, but you've got a few blanks here. In Ephesus and Smyrna, when, when the devil came against the church, he came against the church as a roaring lion. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 tells us that we have an adversary, the devil, who is a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour." And so the devil came against the church as a roaring lion. His instrument, as we've studied in the past, would have been human government, specifically Roman government in the church age, and, church age and its persecutions. But listen, Satan also operates as an angel of light. He also can make himself look as an angel of light. And you need to go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Because I don't want you to take my word for it. The verse is not on the screen, but you need to look at this 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 14. And actually, you want to just in, an, in your notes put verse 15 as well. See, I, I think sometimes we don't really understand how the devil works. And because of our ignorance, man, he can be at work right in front of us and we don't recognize it. It's easy to recognize when people are being martyred for their faith, that's pretty easy to recognize. But what's not easy to recognize is 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 14. It says, No marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his... Say it louder for the people in the back. His ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. Now, that doesn't sound like a roaring lion to me, does it? It sounds like religion. Satan has ministers. He transforms himself as an angel of light. And again, historically, when when, when the devil came against the church and he persecuted it, and the more he persecuted it, the more it grew. Well, I mean, doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results is like the classic definition of insanity, right? That's why I just know I'm not going to lose weight eating donuts. I've I've accepted it. I keep trying. If I just eat these donuts, maybe I'll lose weight. I'm not going to lose weight. Okay. Yeah, it's insanity. And so what the devil does is he changes his strategy. After more than three centuries, and get this key in your notes, he's now going to change his strategy because if he can't counter the work of the Lord, he's going to attempt to counterfeit it. And oh, man. Did he ever? Folks, he, tr- he already counterfeited it in Babel. If everything that I just shared with you was true, and there's a political religious system established through Nimrod and semiramis Ramus worshiping a false incarnate son that somehow died and is resurrected, he already counterfeited it in Genesis chapter 10. And for the rest of human history, you really only have two religions. The biblical one and the devils. And that's all you have. Okay, so, so now we've seen him come against the church in, in Ephesus and Smyrna. It's not working. The church is growing. So what does, man, what does the devil do in this period of church history from 325 to 500 A.D.? Well, it all starts with a man named Constantine. And so in your notes, let's talk about the conversion of a a historical figure named Constantine. You guys packed a lunch today, right? (sighs) The conversion of Constantine marked almost an overnight transformation in history. Any of you that are students of history can understand this and appreciate this. But let let me just share with you his conversion testimony. Because on October 28th of 312, Constantine was a Roman emperor, and this other Roman emperor named Maxentius were coming to battle. And basically, they're fighting over who is going to be the emperor supreme over Rome. And this battle, whoever whoever wins this battle is the man. He's in control of Rome. And it's between Constantine and Maxentius. The night before the battle, Constantine has a vision and hears a voice. That should be two red flags right there. By this sign, thou shalt conquer. That's the voice that he heard. And and he looks in the sky and somehow sees a shining cross or some T-shaped figure in the sky. The next day, Constantine orders crosses or those T-type figurines, the towel, to be put on the soldiers' shields, on their horses, on their uniforms. And now his portion of Rome fights under the sign of the cross, so to speak. And and that's it. That's his conversion testimony. Now let me tell you something right now. No one gets saved seeing seeing a cross in the sky. No one gets saved hearing a voice. And if you would say that today, I know I'm saved because I saw a sign in the sky or I heard a voice speak to me, friend, you're not saved. You need to repent of your sin and put your faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ who died on the cross was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures for your sin and my sin that is the only way that you get saved and so any any conversion experience that doesn't include faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ is a false conversion and there's no way in the world at least in this scenario that this man is a saved man he wins the battle he becomes the sole ruler of the Roman Empire. Now he uses this victory as a ploy to unify the empire both religiously and politically. And so all of a sudden, Christianity became the official religion of Rome. It became a Christian, it became a Christian nation. And again, respectfully, There is no such thing as a Christian nation in the Bible. As a matter of fact, to say that... (laughs) I'm going to say some things that probably will offend you today if I haven't already. But if you would say that the United States is a Christian nation, well, one, you're foolish, You, you just are blind to what's happening in this world. But number two, that is not a biblical statement. As a matter of fact, what you really are saying is that you're equating this political re- religious system of the U.S., you're, 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 you're basically assigning the responsibility and the ownership of that to the devil himself when you make that statement. Because there is no such thing as a Christian nation. We're not establishing the kingdom of heaven, we're establishing the kingdom of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so all of a sudden, through political power and ploy, Rome becomes a Christian nation. And so all of the persecution that had been happening against Christians all over the world all of a sudden begins to cease in 313 with this thing called the Edict of Milan where they basically said, okay, we probably should stop killing those guys because it looks bad for the, the government, for the thing that we're establishing. Constantine in 331 commissioned to have 50 volumes of the scriptures translated and put in vellum, they're vellum Bibles, 50 vellum Bibles, and they were going to be sent to 50 key cities throughout the Roman Empire. They would have included the Codex Vaticanus, the Codex Sinaiticus, the Codex Alexandrius. And if you have been through our ministry tools and training class, you kind of know that's not really the right manuscripts. Let me just tell you, the reason you have a Bible today is because men through history said no to Satan's counterfeit religious system. The reason you have salvation today is because men through history said no to Satan's counterfeit religious system. And and some of you, that'll hit you at lunch, what I just said. So what happened is, in roughly 313, 312, 313, the early Pergamos church period, Satan was successful in marrying the world system to the church because all of a sudden it became a political and a religious system that was married. And so some people would call it the great Christianization of paganism or biblicists would call it the great paganizing of Christianity. Either way, Satan's strategy worked to counterfeit Christ's true church through a political and religious system from a place in which he had a seat of authority. Mm. And so now, get this in your notes, pagan worship in Rome. And by the way, before you get upset with this statement, you had better understand that in Rome, pagan worship was still going on. Babylonian worship was still happening. From Genesis 10 forward, it's always been happening. And it continues to happen. And and by the way, it happens in this country too. So pagan worship in Rome became papal worship in Rome. The false Babylonian religious system did not stop, it just changed its face. And it's still mother and son worship. And by the way, pagans in Rome, because Christianity is now the, the national religion, well, they kept their gods, they just changed the names, they kept their pagan symbols and their idols but they slightly adjusted the names and the images. And so now the emperor becomes the pope. The senate becomes the, cardinal, uh, the college of cardinals. The imperial governors become archbishops in this new religious political system. The governors become the bishops. The civitas become the priests. And the temple women, <laughs> the vestal virgins, become the nuns. You say, "Well, man, what are you saying?" Well, I'm not saying anything other than what I'm saying. So, don't put words in my mouth. Turn to Revelation chapter 17. Well, it sounds a lot like what you're. Listen, don't put words in my mouth. I'm saying what I'm saying. I'm saying whatever the devil is doing in Pergamos is going to continue. All the way through the tribulation period. Because in Revelation chapter 17, there's there's a religious system that Christ himself calls out. And oh, by the way, in verse 5, it says, Upon her forehead was a name written mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. So, what are you saying? what I'm saying is Babylonian pagan worship, Satan's counterfeit, continues and will continue until at least Revelation chapter 17. That's what I'm saying. Okay, so, so man, what do we do with all that? Well, go back to Revelation chapter 2. I, I want you to know that, that Christ gave the opportunity for repentance to this church, both historically and then prophetically, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 16 says, Repent, or else I will come to thee quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And God's a gracious God. And, and God knew that the devil was setting up his seat in Pergamos, both historically as well as prophetically, in church history. And the answer is always repentance. It's always repentance. But you see, the lack of repentance from the Pergamus church period is what would result, as we'll study a little bit further next week, is the period known as the Dark Ages in human history. By the way, they're, they're changing that now. It's not the Dark Ages anymore, it's the Middle Ages, because that's way more palatable than the Dark Ages, because the Dark Ages are dark. The Dark Ages, <laughs> full of evil, bloodshed, death, paganism, Ultimately, the Roman Empire would fall by the sword just as Jesus promised in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 16. Okay, so what do we do with all that? History as well as application today. One, we need to know that Satan is alive and well. He has a religious political system. And whatever face it has is just a counterfeit to biblical Christianity. It's a counterfeit. And, and, And so God calls that church in Pergamos and challenges them to overcome that. Okay, look at verse 17. Let's see the challenge. i got, I got a few minutes left, and we'll wind it down right here. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saveth he that receiveth it. Okay, so, so knowing what we know, knowing how Satan worked in history, Knowing that that Babylonian mystery religion will be present all the way through and in the tribulation period that means it exists today, in whatever form, fashion or face. what do we do with that? Well, number one, we're, we're called to overcome. Okay, So practically, overcomers, number one, they're, they're offered hidden manna. People that overcome this, this, this system and understand that the devil is, man, he's at work, and man, he can be a roaring lion, but he can also be an, as an angel of light. I need to be able to discern that. What does God say for me? Number one, you need the hidden manna. Okay, what is that? Well, in Exodus 16, if you remember, when Israel came out of Egypt, God fed them in the wilderness with manna, with bread from heaven, right? And there, then some of that manna was actually hidden in the Ark of the Covenant, You go back to Exodus 16, verses 32 and 33. That manna is what gave Israel physical life in the wilderness. And if you study the Bible, you're going to see that that in the tribulation period, God's people, Israel, well, they're going to be fleeing in the wilderness again, and God is going to feed them miraculously again in the wilderness. Revelation chapter 12, verse 6, please tell me I'll put that on there. Thank you. I was like, Man. This is going to happen again. The woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared of God that they should feed her there thousand, two hundred and threescore days. So God showed you a picture in the Old Testament of what's going to happen in the, in the end through the Exodus. Israel's going to be fed for 42 months or three and a half years. And if you do the math, you can figure that out. 30 months, 30 days to a month, you can figure that out. Okay, so, so doctrinally, God is showing us that's gonna happen for Israel again, but practically, how I mean, listen, you're not gonna be in the tribulation if you're saved. So, so how do I experience what God has for me today? Well, you still need hidden manna to overcome. And so, hidden manna, number one, is Jesus Christ, because in John chapter six, Christ himself said, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, and I will give and I will give it for the life of the world. And so listen, Jesus Christ is the living bread to give you eternal life. And so number one, you need to come to Christ. If you want to overcome the devil's religious system and not be ensnared and entrapped and deceived by it, number one, you need to be saved. You need to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. You need to put your faith and trust in his finished work and he can give you spiritual life through him. But number two, listen, that manna is a picture of Christ, but number two, that manna is also a picture of God's word. Because listen, Israel in the Old Testament had to go out and every day search for it. And every day gather it. And every day they had to prepare it for themselves to sustain themselves and I'm just telling you listen, what what you need in Pergamos is not just the name of Christ, but you got to learn to hold his word you see the word of God is able to sustain you in times of tribulation in the midst of false doctrine it is able to strengthen you but listen, church man, that's easy to say from a pulpit but you got to get in this book. And it's hidden in here. It's hidden. I-, I wish it was just as easy as opening the Bible and, you know, sleeping with it over your head or over your heart to be spiritual and somehow through osmosis. Oh, Lord, thank you for the promises. Okay, no, 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 no. That's, n- that's not the way it works. It's hidden, which means you got to go get it. You know, that thing, that thing in, in the manna in the Old Testament, that family had to get that, that family's own manna. And their manna wasn't sufficient for the, the family next door, for the guy next door. It, it's a personal want and desire. It's a personal search and study. Proverbs 25 and verse 2 says, it's the glory of God to conceal a thing. Listen, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter. In other words, man, you know, most of you know in this church that we have the opportunity to rule and reign with Christ in his kingdom. Well, if you want to be a king, you better learn to search out some things. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 7 says, We speak the wisdom of God in the mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before this world unto our glory. And listen, whatever your circumstance is this morning, The answer is always Christ and his word. That is always the answer. What do you need to overcome? The devil's whacked out religious system and political system. And by the way, if you don't think the devil's in politics, you haven't been paying attention either. (laughs) What do you need to overcome that? You need Christ and you need his word. And God will give you what you need. You, You have the hidden manna. Number two, overcomers are offered a white stone. And wish I could really tell you what that means I studied that out extensively and man there's just some things in the Bible I ain't got yet now now, historically or, or you know if you study guys that are well respected well read they're going to say that, that in, in ancient times if, if someone was standing before a judge the verdict was delivered through a white stone or a black stone white stone being innocent black stone being guilty and, and again, that's just a historical application or devotional application. I can't find that in the Scriptures. You could say that when a man is saved, he's acquitted. He's found not guilty of the charges laid against him. And that's true, if you know Christ. I don't know exactly what that white stone is. Number three, overcomers are given a new name. And, and man, this is powerful. We can, we can find some Scripture to support this. That new name... When you go back to the Old Testament, doctrinally, Israel's names were written on stones, and they were bore on the high priest's garment. As a matter of fact, in Exodus 28, it says their names were written on an onyx stone, and on that onyx stone were were the names of the children of Israel, six of their names on one stone, six on the other stone, according to their birth, which means that their birth is what gave them a new name. Well, that's very interesting. As a Christian, your birth is what gives you a new name. You're born again. You're a believer in Jesus Christ. Devotionally, we're, we're called Christians. Like Acts 11 and verse 26, I, I don't know if you've ever read that before, but it's powerful. The disciples at Antioch were called Christians first in Antioch. And, and listen, if you're born again, you bear a new name, and it's Christ's name, it's His name. We become like Christ through that name, and that name only comes through a birth. It's like we said earlier, you can't work your way to heaven, you can't do enough good things, you can't be a good enough neighbor, you can't be religious enough. It has to come through a birth. It has to come through a birth. And so devotionally, man, listen, we're, we're born again. We get Christ's name, and because of that, it makes us overcomers. Okay, so, so what, what's the takeaway for us today? I think i I think I got all your blanks filled in. Listen, what's the takeaway for us? Because this morning was kind of of meaty, (laughs) kind of full. What's the takeaway for us? Number one, we need to know Satan has a counterfeit to biblical Christianity. Satan has a counterfeit. And whatever its face is, whatever its name is, is irrelevant because it's any false religious system that is not biblical. Well, they use the Bible. That doesn't make it biblical. It doesn't make it biblical. You can wrongly use the Bible. You can wrongly divide the Bible. And, and by the way, you can wrongly teach the Bible. Well, who are you to say that they're right and you're wrong? Okay, listen, man, give me a break. Like, like the Bible tells us how to rightly divide it and study it. It's in there. So, so, so let me just say this. Number one, if you've been deceived by any false religious system, well, one, you've got the experience that, that Satan's alive and well and at work. Number two, you can be delivered. You can have freedom in Christ because it's possible to overcome Satan's false religious system. You see, when you overcome, God gives you access to spiritual sustenance because what you try to do in religion won't give you strength to live spiritually. You need Christ and you need his word. God God will allow you to overcome. He ensures your identity because you have a new name and you can walk in that power. And, and I would be remiss if I didn't say this last. Maybe you've been promoting a false religious system or doctrine. Christ's word to you is the same, the same word that he gave to Pergamos. Repent. Repent. God's gracious. But if you don't repent, he, he'll come with his sword. And he'll be the one fighting against you. And no offense, you'll lose that battle. You'll lose that battle every time. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for what we've heard this morning, God. We, we, man, a lot of, lot, of, lot of ground we covered, God, but we, we had to see how, man, this battle is real. Doctrine matters in the church. Because false doctrine, even though it may be teaching, and even though it may come from the Bible, It can be contrary to biblical Christianity. And God, help us to see that the devil is at work alive and well through political religious system, through a Babylonian system of power and religion and false worship and false conversion and false salvation. And God, help us to see the need for us to take the word of God outside of these four walls. Because there are people that are ensnared in religious systems. And man, the devil's just blinding them. God, help us to have a burden for the lost, even if they are religious. Help us to love them enough to earn the right to share the gospel with them, to ask questions, to love them in a way that would make them consider what they're a part of. And maybe it is biblical Christianity. But God, if it's not would you give us the opportunity to lead them to Christ and share the truth of God's word to them in a personal relationship?